Welcome or welcome back to the company of the cat. Hi. In the spirit of the elections in Greece, I became pretty democratic myself and uploaded a poll last week. And you voted for House Durandon and Storm's End. I said some things I believe about them in my pre-hammered geography video, so I will start from there. Duran won the love of Elenai, the daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. Her divine parents forbade their love, but Duran and Elenai wed despite them. The god's wrath was terrible to behold, destroying Duran's keep on his wedding and killing all his family and guests. But Duran survived under Elenai's protection. Enraged, Duran declared war on the gods, who replied by hammering his kingdom with massive storms. Each time Duran built a castle to face the sea, the gods destroyed it. Duran kept building larger and more powerful fortifications, until finally the seventh castle, Storm's End, stayed in place and resisted the storms of Seabreaker Bay. Some believe this is because the children of the forest helped in its construction, others believe a young boy who grew up to be Bran the Builder advised Duran, but no one is sure. I believe that the whole story of Duran's destroyed castles came to be because the real event occurred during the Hammer of the Waters. These castles were destroyed by the chaos the Hammer caused. The old songs say that the Greensears used dark magics to make the seas rise and sweep away the land, shattering the arm, but it was too late to close the door. But whether the breaking took place in a single night or over the course of centuries, there can be no doubt that it occurred. The stepstones and the broken arm of Dorne give mute but eloquent testimony to its effect. There is also much to suggest that the Sea of Dorne was once an inland freshwater sea, fed by mountain streams and much smaller than it is today, until the narrow sea burst its bounds and drowned the salt marshes that lay between. We can see that the Stepstones were a unified area and the Sea of Dorne was a smaller inland sea, kind of like what you're seeing on the screen, I think. Meanwhile, the Stormlands and Dorne were connected by a flat, easily passable area with access to fresh water, making the entrance to mainland Westeros way easier. According to the Maesters, the first men came with horses and on foot, which is obviously not that easy to do through Dorne, since we know it was called empty lands by the children of the forest and still has a very unfriendly, harsh climate. It's even worse for those unfamiliar with this kind of climate and terrain. With the fresh inland sea, though, the area all around it would have been more than welcoming as a way through and a place to stay, which means the Stormlands were the second part of Westeros the First Men reached. And it was the first major settlement of the First Men, making it the place where the conflicts with both the Children of the Forest and the Giants began. Rainwood was part of a humongous wood stretching from Cape Wrath to Cape Kraken, and sadly the only parts remaining of this forest are the Rainwood and the Kingswood. Duran was the first to claim part of that forest that up until that point belonged to the children only. He didn't have the best relationship with them, I imagine, so helping him with the castle, a castle that apparently the gods wanted to destroy, is very unlikely if you ask me. The gods who gave birth to Elenai were the gods of the wind and sea. It is said that the sigh of the wind and the rustle of leaves are the old gods speaking to their worshippers, and that the old gods are everywhere around them in forests, waters, stone, etc. The old gods and Elenai's parents sound quite similar, at least to me. If we look at the map, we can see that before the sea level rise, Tarth was part of mainland Westeros and formed a bay. And in the middle of this bay is Storm's End. The place is ideal for building a castle. It has a bay for protection. And even in the story, it was after Duran's wedding that the gods started to send storms. So before, the weather as well as the waves and wind were for sure milder in this area, because it was protected by the bay. The wrath of the gods was the hammer of the waters. We see that the first men considered magical people kids of the gods or blessed by the gods very often. So I think that Elenai was most likely just a magical person. I talked about it in the Helper Maiden Archetype analysis. Almost every male figure we have in myths and in the current timeline 
is portrayed with a magical woman by their side. Elena is saved Duran, the woods witch who was sleeping with Herdon and Harlon, was prolonging their life. The Night King had the Corch Queen, Stannis has Mel, Aemon had Alice, Aegon had Visenya, Bloodstone had the Tiger Woman, Clarence had the Witch Wife. I think you get the concept. Since it is pointed out specifically that Elena saved Duran and protected him, she was for sure magical. But was she just a wood witch? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that in the myth we are given a very specific and weird piece of information. She gave her maiden hand to him, dooming herself to a mortal lifespan. We have stories with wood witches as wives all over Westeros. Why would Elena no longer have longevity? We are missing something here. And I think that what we are missing is the fact that Elena was a child of the forest. The children of the forest were able to do magic and not just skin change. It is never specified what kind of magic exactly. But even though the maesters say it is not the case, every legend we have about them suggests that they were magic wielders in general. If Elena was a singer, then there would be some reasonable explanations about some things in the legend. First one, her parents would be magical, they are called the children of the forest by humans. The forest and nature around them were considered their parents. And Elena's parents are nature gods in the songs, and they were associated with the wind and the sea, because this was the form in which the consequences came. We do not have a description of her, but Catelyn said that he had to be returned to the sea, and in the histories and lore is depicted as a mermaid at first and with legs after. I'm gonna say there wasn't a switcheroo and she had legs from the start, but for some reason she was connected to the sea. The children of the forest we know for a fact were skin changing into sea animals too, and we have one named Scales, so it could be something like that, a child living close to the sea, skin changing into sea animals, or with scaly skin. The second thing is the bit about her giving away her immortality because she sucked Duran. The children of the forest aren't immortal, yes, but we know they live longer, much longer, and we do not know how much exactly. Although there were never many of them, even before the first men. The gods gave us long lives, but not great numbers, is what Liv said to Bran. Now we have for sure one other hero that married a singer, and we are given a very specific line. He counted giants and merlings amongst him his friends, and were a woman of the children of the forest, though she died giving birth to his son. That sheds a little bit of light, I think. Indeed, by having sex with Duran, she is kinda giving her longevity away. There is a good chance she would become pregnant, and considering the mortality rate of births back then, the size difference, and of course the fact that we are reading Martin, the possibility she would die during childbirth is higher than normal. Godriff was the first human that claimed part of the Rainwood, which was part of the huge forest covering a large part of Westeros. His son, though, returned the forest to the children and he was also called the Devout, meaning he was a follower of the old gods and sympathetic towards the children. So maybe his mother was indeed a child of the forest. It makes the whole story more logical, in my mind at least. <laughs> Duran marrying a singer and claiming Raywood for humans easily could lead to serious conflicts with the children of the forest and lead to the hammer of the waters. The children woke the old gods and the sea rose, drowning and shattering the earth. Stormlands being so close to the Arm of Dorne obviously suffered quite a lot. As I said, Darth disconnecting from the mainland can lead to extreme climate change in the area, as well as winds, waves, etc. Duran by marrying Elenai and claiming the wood caused war and in the end the hammer of the waters, something that won him the name Godsgriff, since the old gods were against him. 
We know that after the hammer, the pact happened and the wisest of both sides were involved. Since Durand's son was both devout and the person who returned Rainwood, he was probably a, a part of these people. And that brings me to the castle, who helped with the building of Storm's End. Bran the Builder was not involved. Even if he was born at the time, which I doubt, he would be a child. As Martin has said, it's myths and legends, and with time every magical and reputed magical construction is credited to him, even if he wasn't involved. Who was, though? Because the hall has magical barriers, that's certain. Mel had to be inside the walls to give birth and couldn't just set the shadow to kill Renly. It isn't as powerful as the wall or the magic involved wasn't the exact same, since we do not have ice involved, and dragons could fly just fine at Storm's End, something that isn't possible at the wall. The children of the forest being involved as a whole, again, is not possible in my opinion. As I said before, they didn't have a good relationship with him and there was an agreement between humans and the children when his son came into power and Storm's End was already built. But the barriers are very reminiscent of the cave over the wall where the children live. If Elenai was one of the children of the forest, then she could be the one to help Duran. We often dismiss it, but their gods were the gods of the forest, stream and stone. In the Winds of Winter Ariane chapter we have, we are told that in the caves at the Stormlands, there were faces on the stone in the underground caves the children used to live. And all at once she found herself in another cavern, five times as big as the last one, surrounded by a forest of stone columns. Damon's son moved to her side and raised his torch. Look how the stone's been shaped, he said. Those columns and the wall there, see them? Faces, said Ariane, so many sad eyes, staring. Stone is a barrier of magic. It can preserve the magic on the inside or blocks magic from the outside, as we have seen. For example, Danny Sex had turned to stone for years, but at the right time, they hatched. And let's not start with the crypts, the ironborn saying, bless him with stone, the fused stone, the oily stone, the grayscale, because all these are whole as videos of their own. In any case, stones for sure can be enchanted with magic to offer protection, because this is what stone is. A strong inert barrier that can be used for countless things. The use of stone and rock has had a huge impact on humanity and is an integral piece of Earth's history. It makes sense to have the magical equivalent in a soya. It protects and is a tool for both mundane and magical uses. So I think the Storm's End was charmed by Elenai to protect Duran herself and her family by both natural and magical attacks. I don't know whether it works against every kind of magic, but I'm guessing scrying the inside of the castle while outside isn't possible if the magic is similar to Bran's cave, since Mel couldn't see Bloodraven. The Shadow Baby couldn't pass, and we do not know what else. I'm guessing why it cannot pass, but I'm not sure we will find that out. It could also be more durable against Dragonfire too. Normal stone is already quite hard to melt. I mean, Harrenhal was burned, but there is still stone. It's not like the whole castle is vanished. Maybe Storm's End is even stronger. This is a myth, and even though I love just rambling about myths and trying to guess the real stories behind them, does this affect the current storyline? Yes and no. I think it's part of a pattern that foreshadows future events. We have a pattern that we see all over the books, an ancient fault with a disputed builder that is considered magical, or is indeed magical, is seized, and in most of this, Stannis is involved. <laughs> I think these events foreshadow the situation at the wall. Let's start with the Siege of Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion, because we have more than one. We have the very grey Stannis the Manis inside the castle trying to keep it for his Storm King brother and the very green Richmond trying to take the castle for the dragons. 
in these seeds, the biggest problem, as with many seeds, was the food. They were cut off completely. Maize was outside of the walls and the red wines closed Seabreaker Bay to all trade. The people inside went full on mesology, minus the wedding party. They ate horses, dogs, cats, rats, and they almost started to eat their dead. Some people tried to open up and surrender something that didn't sit well with Stannis, and he prepared to have them hurled at the Tyrells via catapult, which is so metal. But Maester Crescent convinced him to imprison the men since the garrison might need to eat the dead if their food ran out, which is even more metal. What the fuck, Crescent? Enter Davos, my boy sneaked into Storm's End with salted fish and onions, allowing the garrison to survive a bit longer until Ned broke the seeds. The second seeds we have is the one in 299 AC, and we have again the very prominent green antler Renly, and on the outside we have the grey and now fiery Azora high figure Stannis. They agreed on a battle set to start at dawn the next day, but before the battle starts, while being armored by Brienne, Renly is killed by the Shadow Baby. The person sneaking into the castle is once more Davos, but this time is to help Stannis, who is outside. A year later, we have another siege at Storm's End, where Mace is outside while the castle is loyal to Stannis, who is at the wall. The situation started similarly to the siege during the rebellion. Mace and Paxter tried to cut off their supplies. That didn't go anywhere since Mance lifted the siege and went back to King's Landing because of Marjorie's arrest by the Faith. He left the talking force under Mathis Rovan, but I doubt it matters at that point. The Golden Company is in the Stormlands, John Conn planned to attack Storm's End in the name of Aegon, and the small council later heard reports of John marching towards the castle. In the Ariane chapter from the Winds of Winter we have, Haldon said to her that they took it, and that Mance's army is marching from King's Landing and a battle is to take place. On one hand we have the crown, so on paper Tommen, who is a fake stag, since he's not a Baratheon, and on the other side we have Aegon, who I still stand by the belief is most likely fake, and I think these events here give even more credence to this idea, since it's even more ironic if both the sides are fake. We also have John Connington, the hand that is turning grey because of grayscale. Watching all the previous sieges, I'm betting that Griff will win and take the castle. Because the grey and slash or the Azorahai figure, when a siege is happening, is on the winning side. The men of Stannis were too few to keep Storm's End against the Golden Company, so we will discard them here. We have the Richmond, green all around on one side, and the literally turning grey, John on the other. Another siege where Stannis was involved is Pikes during Balon's Rebellion. Stannis's win over Victarion allowed Robert's forces to cross the Straits and reach the Iron Islands. Stannis subdued Great Wick, the forested island controlled by the fuck-around and triplets Good Brothers. And lastly, there was the siege of Pike, where Robert had on his side the very cold grey Ned Stark and Thoros, who was first through the bridge wielding a sword coated in wildfire. There is clearly a pattern here. Even though this battle is in favour of Robert, who is a Garth the Green character, he had on his side and succeeded because of them two grey broody second sons and a priest of Rolor with a flaming sword. Stannis and Sidious follow a very specific path, even though Stannis is not the magical Azor Ahai male claims, he still is a character that gives us many hints. Stannis lost his footing south, but at this point doesn't really matter. The others are definitely the most important thing right now. They are in a sort of siege at the wall, since the others are on the other side, and they need to stay inside until they find a way to win. 
while they fight each other and lose resources day by day, like in the siege during Robert's Rebellion. During wars, and especially sieges, the worst of people comes out. They already killed John and refuse to understand that this only makes things worse. In all the sieges we have seen in all these allegedly magical keeps, the side that won lost and sacrificed a lot. They will do stuff because they will be desperate knowingly or unknowingly, Stannis in the first siege of Storm's End was starving. Many of his people died from starvation. They were considering it in the dead. Some tried to surrender without considering that this might lead to a worse fate because they were desperate. And in the second siege of Storm's End, he killed his brother. And it's kind of a sad story arc because the first siege he did it for Robert. He was trying to protect Renly and no one really thanked him or acknowledged him. And after his first brother died, he killed his younger one. But the most important thing is definitely the fact that none of these sieges was an one-person job. Stannis held Storm's End so Ned could break the last of the crown's power. Stannis, without Davos, wouldn't have been able to hold the siege for much longer, and Ned and all of Robert's cause would have a different outcome. Same in Bellon's Rebellion. If Stannis hadn't crushed Victarion, it wouldn't have been as easy for the army to pass and crush the rebellion. Ned's help was also crucial, and Thoros was of Mir. But the madman had a flaming sword, so the most is a high picture ever. People should not underestimate others and help each other. The real Azor Ahai are the friends we made along the way. The last thing that is heavily hinted in all this event is the fact that in the end, the people who helped the most, cared the most, and sacrificed the most were often outcasts. People that many considered cold, cruel, bastards, and unlikable who did cruel things because they had to, again, with or without knowing it. Even in the siege at Dragonstone, Loras Tyrell, the Knight of Flowers, beat the Bastard of Nightsong, but at what cost? Sadly, in a war, the winner isn't that much of a winner, and all sides commit crimes. This is it for this video. I hope you enjoyed watching it. If you did, press a like, comment your thoughts, and whatever else you want to talk about, and tune in for the next one. It's gonna be about how the siege of Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion and the one in Dragonstone give us a lot of clues for the Battle of Ice and make some predictions. Until then, bye!